I'm basically trying to understand how it's possible for us to take any kind of thought, no matter how complex and abstract, and convert it into a sequence of words. And conversely, how we hear sequences of words that other people say. And welcome everyone to Slater Pod. Today we're really happy to have F. Fedorenko on the pod. So F's a cognitive neuroscientist who studies the human language system. So very interesting um, pod upcoming here. So she's an associate professor of neuroscience at the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at MIT. She also runs EvLab, a language lab at MIT, discovering how minds and brains create language. Hi, Ev. Hi, how's it going? Well, how are you? Where in the world does this podcast find you? Are you at the MIT in Massachusetts? or? Yeah, I am indeed. I'm right at MIT here in Boston, Cambridge, to be precise. As we spoke about briefly before the pod, like we typically cover business topics on, on this podcast. So please try and break down for the interested layperson, like, you know, educated, interested layperson, what you do, like assuming you kind of meet somebody on a plane, like how would you describe what you do at your lab and at MIT? So what I often would say is that um, I'm basically trying to understand how it's possible for us to take any kind of thought, no matter how complex and abstract, and convert it into a sequence of words. Uh, and conversely, how we hear sequences of words that other people say, and we can infer all sorts of complex information about what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what their views in the world are, and so on. And so I've been studying the system that seems to be basically this encoder-decoder system, if you wish, which converts between thoughts or meanings and um, sequences of words, communicative signals, uh, in whatever language you're um, speaking. So that's what I've been doing for, I guess, the last decade and a half um, in various ways. Um, and um, yeah, and we've learned some interesting things. We're going to go into a lot of these interesting things. So just on a personal, how did you get into this? How did you get started on this? Like what triggered the interest in, in this field? So I grew up in a country where there was no real cognitive science or cognitive neuroscience or anything like that um, at the time. Um, and But I was always interested in languages. So I was actually learning many languages growing up. And um, I was trying to figure out if there's a way for me to uh, connect this love of languages with um, my future, but I also really liked science and math, and it was not clear to me at the time how to do this. Um, but when I came to the U.S., I came here for college. Um, I went to Harvard, and I took a class in psycholinguistics. I didn't know what it was, but it sounded interesting from the description, and it was immediately clear that this is what I'll spend my life doing. It's basically trying to understand um, how our minds and brains um, how this is, how the language system works in our minds and brains. What are the computations that support our ability to so quickly and efficiently get meaning from utterances and convert thoughts into utterances? In my next life, my ambition is to do, to study this as well. That sounds so, so interesting. Now, let's start with a, with a very simple question. What's the origin of language? What do we know about the origin of language? We don't know that much. I mean, there's a lot of hypotheses out there. But of course, evolutionary questions, although perhaps some of the most intriguing questions, right, how do we, how do we come to be what we are now, are also among the hardest because um, brains don't fossilize. And so we only have very, very indirect evidence for um, what kinds of um, culture existed, for example, a million years or half a million years. 
and language has been around for approximately that long and that range. So what we do know is that um, uh, our brains change substantially uh, between, for example, our closest non-human primates and humans, and that change was gradual uh, now that all these kind of intermediate species have been uncovered. And the most important change that happened is that we expanded the parts of the brain that are not tied to processing sensory information or controlling our limbs. So there is a big, big, big portions of our brain that basically process sensory information. So visual cortex, auditory cortex, right? We hear things, we see things, we feel things, feel touch. And then another big part is uh, very fine grain motor control, right? We can do very precise things with our fingers. We can move our mouse in ways that make all sorts of cool sounds and so on and so forth. But we also have parts of the brain that are kind of more flexible and work with more abstract representations. And those parts of the brain expanded a lot in humans. Um, so basically, suddenly we have a lot more uh, capacity to um, represent information in more abstract ways, to make generalizations, to um, kind of see patterns which otherwise may not be obvious. Um, and so that's the biggest change. Some of the systems that are housed by these more kind of, they're typically referred to as the association cortex, um, are the language system, the system that's linked to your general kind of fluid reasoning ability, your intelligence, basically, your kind of raw uh, thinking ability, and social cognition. So somehow these three systems got more sophisticated in humans. And indeed, if you kind of look cognitively at us versus other primate species, we're smarter, we have language, and we are just generally better at reasoning, at solving new problems. But which of these systems was primary, if you wish, right? Is it the emergence of language that drove the other systems to get more complex? Or is it general intelligence that first kind of made a leap and then with it uh, caught up the communication system and the social intelligence um, system? Uh, or if it's social cognition that initially kind of got more complex as groups got larger, right? And we had to keep track of more um, fine-grained information about who to trust, which people to f affiliate with versus not, and things like that. And maybe that made us generally smarter and also gave us a system like language. Um, there is a lot of hypotheses covering pretty much all of these possibilities. Uh, we don't know the answers. I mean, I have my biases given what we've um, learned about the relationship between language and other things. Um, as I guess we'll talk about a little bit later. But the short answer is um, we don't have a, a clear answer for which particular ability led to the emergence of language, whether language was primary or secondary to some of these other things like general intelligence and social cognition. Do we know if it was a relatively gradual or somewhat like an evolutionary term, sudden change? It's got to have been gradual. <laughs> it's got to have been gradual. I mean, most things, there, there is not uh, often where you see like kind of punctate events and suddenly you have, especially for kind of big changes, right? Um, I mean, there are people who have proposed things like, you know, there was like a single mutation and suddenly we had language. That's not compatible with what we know about um, genetics. Now, is, is language generally like uh, a requirement for high level thought? And, and do you think like how much of our general reasoning ability is connected to language? So that's a question that actually brought me to cognitive neuroscience. So using brain methods to understand the structure of human cognition. 
And I was very interested in this um, idea that there's a deep link potentially between language and kind of abstract representations of structure, which of course characterizes complex thought, but also other domains like mathematical reasoning or logic or kind of general planning of complex um, action sequences and so on. And um, so my initial bias was that there would be this strong link between language and these other things. But it turns out the answer is uh, no, there, there really isn't. Um, and there is now, yeah, and that was surprising to me at the time, now kind of having um, incorporated this into my worldview over the last decade, um, uh, it makes a lot of sense and a lot of other things kind of fall into place. But I can tell you briefly how we know this. So there's basically two tools that we have, two main tools for understanding whether two cognitive capacities, say language and music or math and music or whatever, draw on the same resources or not. Uh, one approach is uh, a very old approach. It's been available for centuries. And that is to look at whether brain damage affects both things, tends to affect both, both things, right? So you may have a stroke and then you may have language problems, but do you also have problems in math or music, right? And if these things kind of tend to always go together, that suggests that whatever brain region got damaged or brain regions supported in some way both of these abilities. It doesn't necessarily follow because it may be that you have two small nearby distinct regions um, and they just tend to be uh, both affected because of the, of the proximity. And for, um, for teasing that possibility apart, uh, double uh, dissociations are important, right? So you may have one person who has problems with one but not the other and vice versa in another individual. So that's one tool. And another tool is uh, brain imaging. So that only became available in the 90s. And it's a great tool for asking this kind of question. For many questions, functional brain imaging is really not an ideal <laughs> way to um, get answers. But for this tool, we can say, okay, let's find, you know, in Florian's brain, let's find brain regions that respond a lot during language processing. And then let's ask, how do these regions respond when I ask him to solve a math problem? or to listen to a piece of music, right, or to make some social inference. And you can see whether there is response or if some other parts of the brain are active during these non-linguistic tasks. And so using both of these approaches, these um, kind of brain damage to behavior correlations and brain imaging, um, we have found that the language system is not engaged during all sorts of diverse non-linguistic tasks, um, and it doesn't seem to be needed for those tasks. So for example. Uh, if you take uh, an individual with um, severe aphasia, so aphasia is basically language problems that result from uh, brain damage uh, crudely. And so you can find individuals with really, really severe linguistic deficits. So basically the whole language system is effectively gone, uh, typically due to a massive stroke. And um, you can ask if such individuals can still, you know, solve Sudoku puzzles or do math uh, problems, right? Or um, write music if they were writing music prior to their stroke. And it turns out amazingly that um, most of these abilities to engage in non-linguistic complex tasks uh, are preserved, even though you no longer have the ability to convert your thoughts into a verbal format or to understand what somebody else is saying. But all of the richness of thought and reasoning is still there. That's fascinating. I also wonder, like, for example, if you dream or like how you, you know, express your thoughts, like in kind of maybe self-talk or something. Anyway, that would probably be a bit of a tangent. Um, 
Now, you, you did mention brain imaging. So do we know like what regions of the brain support language processing? Can we kind of narrow that quite, quite uh, exactly? Or So that's one thing that um, uh, one innovation that I brought uh, to the field when I started my work is to develop paradigms that allow us to find these regions in individual brains. Because um, prior to that, people were doing uh, what's known as group analysis was basically taking a bunch of individual brains and try to average them together, which leads to a very blurry representation. And um, in many cases, it's very hard to compare findings between uh, studies. And that's kind of the essence of cumulative uh, scientific um, enterprises, right? So, um, so I developed paradigms that allow us in a few minutes of scanning to find um, uh, very re reliably and robustly regions that are active. Um, for uh, during understanding uh, of uh, linguistic utterances. Um, and basically, you can do this by contrasting people's responses when I play you some sentences, either auditorially, you can read them on the screen. By the time the information gets to this system we're talking about now, it doesn't matter how the information got there, right? In fact, if you are a speaker of a sign language, you can be watching somebody sign and the information ends up in the system as well. This is basically a system that takes sequences of communicative signals and derives meaning from them, tries to map them onto something about um, uh, the world, right? Which is what utterances typically are about. So, um, and you contrast, you, you look for regions that respond a lot during this condition compared to something like uh, listening to speech in an unfamiliar language, which kind of has a lot of the perceptual features, low-level features, but you can't get any meaning out of it. Or reading sequences of non-words like Florp or Blicket, which again, kind of sound language-like, but there's nothing there, no structure, no meaning. Um, and those kinds of contrasts very reliably get you these language regions, which there's, it's quite an extended system. So you basically have a few regions in the uh, frontal lobe uh, and a few regions on the side surface of the temporal lobe. In most individuals, the system is in the left hemisphere, um, although there is also some contributions from the uh, right hemisphere, homotopes, kind of homotopic areas. Um, so yeah, so that's how we find language regions, and then we can ask questions about them. Like I was saying, we can ask, do they engage in various non-linguistic tasks, or what exactly in the language stimuli do they like? Like, do they like structure, or do they like meanings of words or particular words and things like that? How about the, the different components? Like, for example, is word meaning uh, processed in a different part than syntax, or is it kind of basically all areas that are responsible for language would light up at the same? Yeah, it seems like it's all mushed together there. So um, when people started uh, thinking about language, there was this um, one tradition which tried to make a clear separation between word meanings and kind of abstract structures, like you make a sentence of, you know, a subject and a verb or something like that, right? You can have intuitions like that as a non-language researcher uh, even, but um, it turns out that the way that words combine in different languages is actually very highly dependent on particular words. So there is very little super abstract patterns that you get in language. And there is a lot of particularities about how any given word combines with other words. And so that view of language structure is known as lexi lexicalized syntax. So it's basically syntax is just grammar, right? Rules for combining words together to form phrases and sentences. And so this is a view of syntax where you have word knowledge, you have a good idea of what a word means, 
And then along with that, you also store information about how that word can enter into phrases and clauses with other words. Um, and um, uh, again, there's many, many people who have argued that we have machinery that's specialized for syntax, that just does syntax, but is relatively insensitive to things like word meanings. And uh, again, because I was trained somewhat in that tradition, I was very sympathetic to that position. And I spent a few years in graduate school trying to find these putative syntax uh, areas. And there is a lot of brain regions that are very sensitive to linguistic structure. So it's not like there is no syntax, but it so happens that any bit of the language system that shows sensitivity to structure, to how words combine together, is also deeply sensitive to word meanings, which makes sense in light of this kind of theorizing about language as um, where a lot of information about structure is stored as parts of our uh, word knowledge. So how words go with other words. I was torn about asking that next question, but I still have to ask you. Um, like, we know the brain's very efficient at compute, but like, do we have any idea about just in, in kind of computer terms, bytes and bits, like how the, what, what's the compute necessary for, for human language processing? It's a very tricky question. It's a fun question. Um, so there is one, one paper that I really like by Frank Mollick and Steve Fantadosi that came out a few years ago. And they tried to estimate not the amount of compute that you kind of need to process a given sentence in real time or something like this, but how much information, how many bits do you need to store all of language knowledge, okay? So as you're coming into the world, you're learning about forms of words, about meanings of words, these rules for how they go together. And it turns out that actually about uh, like one and a half megabytes is enough um, to store most of what we know about language. So, and, and by far the biggest uh, chunk of that knowledge is taken up by um, uh, knowledge of words. And if you think about it, it kind of makes a lot of sense because most of, um, most of the things we learn, most of the things that are hardest to learn, most of the things that carry information in language are lexical items, word meanings, right? Um, that's what allows us to uh, express kind of an infinitude or at least a very, very large number of kind of totally new ideas um, and so on. So on the one hand, that's kind of sad. On the other hand, it's, it's exceedingly beautiful, right? Because like the efficiency of, you know, of the brain and of just communication, expressing basically an infinite, uh, an infinite amount of ideas with 1.5 megabytes. That's right. That's right. Staying on the topic of compute, I mean, are there um, objectively easy language and objectively difficult to learn language? Does it completely depend on the context and like, you know, yeah, if you're a, a kind of an adult already, you need to acquire it. Or if you're, if you're younger. First language learning, so learning languages as a kid, I'm not aware of any claims, certainly not any evidence that some languages are easier to acquire than others. But for um, uh, adults learning languages, there are claims out there. Uh, I don't think the evidence we have is the right kind of evidence to answer this question conclusively, because the kind of evidence you would want, right, is taking individuals, a group of individuals, randomly assigning them to different languages, having training regimens that are very, very similar across these different languages, right? Because you want the only thing to differ is the language itself, not how it's taught or how frequently it's taught or in what context it's taught. And I don't think any such data exists. 
So people have intuitions, especially individuals who um, study multiple languages will often have intuitions like, um, you know, this language is harder, this language is easier. There's some consistency there, but it seems like the language that is your native language, of course, will also have a lot to say about this, right? Because, for example, if you're um, uh, a speaker of a language that uses tones to express lexical distinctions, like Mandarin or something, it may be easier for you to learn a language like Vietnamese, which also uses uh, tones or some other tonal language. Um, but um, uh, you know, conversely, if you if you're using a, if you are a speaker of a language that has all sorts of complex morphology, like Russian as such language, right? There's a lot of very particular endings you have to put on words to make sure they agree in you know number and gender and all that stuff then it may be easier for you to learn another language with complex morphology so these things kind of make sense at the intuitive level but kind of large scale systematic investigations of such questions um are lacking um and it's you know it's a very interesting <laughs> general question right like are some languages easier or more efficient at expressing ideas um, than others. I know there is, with kind of increasing emphasis on trying to generalize um, uh, findings from language, from language research to multiple typologically distinct languages and to comparing languages, I think maybe in the next decade or two we'll actually get um, um, some answers to some of these questions. Wow, super interesting. So uh, in terms of mother tongue versus kind of acquired fluency, um, I have this theory, I guess, in my head that um, we com we may compartmentalize a little bit. Like, I'm just from my personal experience, like my native language is German, kind of Swiss German, right? So I'm like fluent, of course, in day to day. It's like, it's how I think, I guess, if, uh, you know, speak to the kids, speak to family, et cetera. But if I had to talk or if I have, if, if I need to speak about my business, right, which is like 98% English and all the terminology is English, all the context is English, all the terms are English. If I have to speak about that in German, I actually struggle and it's easier for me to describe that in English. So um, is there like, um, how do you think about that kind of context dependent fluency of people? I know it may sound a little bit niche, but uh, I find it just personally fascinating for me. No, it's indeed very interesting. I mean, that has all sorts of uh, implications for how we think about uh, conceptual alignment between languages as well, right? Because, I mean, presumably most of the concepts are the same, right? And yet oftentimes in bilinguals or multilinguals, um, it seems like there's parts of the semantic meaning space that we're just not comfortable talking about in one language or the other, right? Because like you said, like, you know, the context in which you've learned these words are in the context of that particular language and you necessarily never had the need to learn all those corresponding words in German or whatever. Right. And so um, I think there is absolutely <laughs> uh, all sorts of context dependence in um, the in how we cover with the vocabulary of a particular language, the vast meaning space. Um, and I'm sure there's all sorts of um, dependencies like that. So you're talking about here about um, like a single individual um, where one language is used more for like business purposes and business context and one may be in more personal context. But there is also interesting cultural differences, right? So some concepts are not needed or are not as important in some cultures compared to others. So for example, there are some cultures, um, uh, well, in many parts of the world, but for example, in the uh, Brazilian Amazon, uh, that don't need exact number concepts. So they just don't use them. They don't trade and it's just not important to them. So they, they don't have a word to express a concept like one, 
They just don't have a word for it, right? Or three or five. They have words like more or less, okay? But that's very, very coarse. And so, of course, then in that language, you simply can't express certain notions, right? And similarly, in some other cultures, smell may be really important. So in English, our vocabulary for smell terms is really limited. Uh, like, a, you know, it's big, like, I don't know, a handful of terms. But in some, in some cultures, that's a really big part of your everyday life. And so correspondingly, you come up with a lot of words to express these very subtle distinctions and smells. And color is a similar thing. So there's also these cool differences about whether a language is even capable of covering kind of the full space of concepts that we know are present in at least some parts of the um, human society. That is so interesting because that's kind of what I almost tried to get at because in, in English, like, you know, we cover like all these AI, the, the field of AI, the field of machine translation, the field of business, merchants and acquisitions, startup funding, venture capital. I mean, those terms don't exist in Swiss German. I mean, I could maybe try to somehow describe them, but like they just don't exist. Nobody speaks about these things in like, a, you know, a Southern Germanic dialect. So I guess there's there's a limitation generally of just describing, uh, yeah, the meaning space. Let's talk about some of the experts uh, in, in acquiring languages. Um, context dependent or not, polyglots. I think you've looked into this phenomenon and I um, listened to a podcast, I'm blanking on the name, but somebody who spoke like 15, 20 languages, like apparently these people can learn languages much faster than others. Like how, how come? Like, is it just innate talent? Is it grit, dedication? Yeah, good question. It's not actually clear to me whether they can learn languages faster. It is a fact by definition that they learn more languages than typical individuals. Whether it's particularly easy for them, I think is a common thing that people assume. But talking to polyglots, one striking thing is that they're a very heterogeneous population, right? And some of them will say like, yes, I feel like I have a good kind of feel for language, like things come naturally to me. And I would like, I felt like that when I was learning languages as a kid, like I just very easily kind of saw connections, like it was just kind of came naturally. But there's also polyglots who speak many languages and who say, yeah, I don't think I'm talented or anything. I just spend a lot of time doing this. I kind of like learning languages. I like reading books in the original or whatever, right? Whatever reasons people have to learn language or go to a country and be able to speak the local language. And they just spend a lot of time in it and they get better because that's what happens if you spend a lot of time with something, you will generally improve, right? And so, um, uh, you know, there, there's a handful of claims that people have tried to um, uh, make, kind of generalizations about polyglots, like they tend to be male, they tend to be gay. And it's like, well, <laughs> those samples that they've looked at are teeny tiny. And, you know, of course it's going to be men, right? Because men have historically had more uh, freedom in what they do and they may have more time and not have family obligations and whatever. So, like, I, I think there's actually quite a big contingent on, of female polyglots as well. And so I think um, there's actually quite, um, uh, quite a need right now. It's a very interesting population to try to characterize them in kind of larger, more systematic ways. And now that we have ways for, at least for behavioral investigations, we can use the web to access uh, large groups of um, polyglots all over the world. And we can try to understand whether there is something similar about them or to the extent that there's kind of clusters of different types of polyglots, what are the relevant dimensions, right? Um, one thing that... Um, seems quite clear is that different polyglots are different, are better at different aspects of language. So some people are really great imitators, right? So you can hear kind of a 
phrase in another language, totally different phonology, right? Some, some totally unfamiliar sounds, and they could just reproduce it. There's something about vocal motor coordination where they can translate that auditory sequence into a sequence of verbal commands. But not all polyglots are like that. Some polyglots have, you know, pretty like serious accents in, in when they speak other languages, but they may speak the language really well. Like they know all the words and know how to put them together, but they're actually not really good at producing vertically kind of the, the right sound sequences. And so there's definitely at least that dimension of kind of what parts of language do you find, um, you know, easier or um, are better at for whatever reason. Good point. I remember uh, uh, a student uh, when, I, when I was studying translation and she was amazing at um, reproducing absolutely perfectly like Swiss German pronunciation, but then she would stumble across like certain things where I'm like, that's kind of a basic error. Like, but she, she would say like in an absolute perfect accent, right? Uh, so yeah, I guess there's different, different strength here. Uh, and then there's these kind of brute force, uh, brute force just um, uh, people that, that, that study very hard, right? I think most of them do, actually. So, so like a lot of these polyglots say, like, I spend a lot of time doing this. <laughs> like nobody says, oh, you know, yeah, I just went and had a conversation at a market and suddenly I speak, you know, Tamil or whatever. They're all like spending hours and hours and hours each week studying languages. They have their little systems. <laughs> like different people do it differently. Some people serialize. Some people like, OK, I'll spend a week or two weeks on this language and then I'll switch and then I'll switch and then I'll come back. And so they, they all spend a lot of time doing it. That's certainly true, too. Now, as a cognitive neuroscientist, what are your thoughts on the process of translation? And like, is this something that um, is interesting from, from a scientific point of view, from, from you know, what, what you're looking at? Basically, the, like what happens when we're translating things, right? We have multiple codes. And so a translator is an individual who has access to, um, to those multiple codes in their own head. Like they know how to express an idea in English and say in, I don't know, Mandarin or whatever, right? And then um, there is presumably shared set of concepts that different languages have access to. And so you kind of are trying to find uh, a transform from one language to another while preserving as much of the conceptual structure as possible, right? And sometimes people say like, you know, is it ever exactly the same meaning expressed in a different language? And I think the answer there is absolutely yes. <laughs> In fact, in many, many cases, you can very well express the same idea in multiple languages, and it's effectively the same meaning. But like we talked about a little earlier, right, there are some um, parts of the meaning space for which different languages may lack um, uh, words, right, may lack expressions to uh, convey them. And so that may lead to um, cases of these imperfect uh, matches where Maybe in some language you can express something really, really clearly and efficiently. And in another language, you kind of have to go in um, all sorts of kind of roundabout ways to uh, convey an idea. Or you may not even be able to do it, right? If you don't have a word for a concept, right? And um, like the concepts are not used in that culture. Like how do you translate three into piraha, right? Like if that, that's a language spoken in parts of the Brazilian Amazon by a group there. Um, they don't have that concept. They, they don't need it. And so, so it just doesn't even make sense to talk about translating in that case, right? Might be interesting to look at what percentage of like kind of the daily requirement of words and concept and meaning is almost like one-to-one -one transferable and where like, are we getting into a gray area and where do we get into, well, this just does not exist. We need to paraphrase and maybe even at like an asterisk, like, hey, cultural note. That actually would be a very, very 
interesting um, investigation to try to understand which aspects are like truly universal in terms of having linguistic machinery for expression. Like I said, a lot of recent work has focused on cases of differences, right? Trying to explore these parts of the meaning space that uh, vary across languages and try to understand, um, you know, the solutions that different languages come up with to express given their cultural particular needs. Uh, but understanding the universals would be um, uh, equally important, I think. It would be also interesting for uh, exploring machine translation, because I guess where it's like the meaning is absolute and the equivalence is basically absolute. Like, yes, you could mathematically compute it, but as soon as you get into the gray space and like more, you know, where you actually need to have a lot of cultural inference, et cetera, it gets obviously um, a lot tougher. And I want to run this um, thought experiments by you. Uh, when people, you know, like investors call us, they're like, hey, should we invest in this company or that company? Uh, but isn't Google Translate going to disrupt this tomorrow morning? Like I usually tell them, well, if we get, completely perfect, creative, you know, context, um, appropriate machine translation, we almost achieved something like AGI, artificial general intelligence. What are your thoughts on that? Can machines kind of be truly creative in language translation without AGI or like, what are you just generally, what are your thoughts on that? It's a good question. I think a lot of it will hinge on what exactly you mean by creative in language, for example, but let's, I mean, so uh, first of all, the language models that exist today, like large language models like GPT-2, 3, and uh, so on, they're incredibly impressive. They can um, acquire linguistic patterns really, really well. In fact, they can learn some of the regularities that some linguists have previously argued are just impossible to learn from the input alone. It's just you just can't learn it from statistics. You need some innate kind of biases uh, to see how certain structures work. Um, but, um, you know, being good at language doesn't mean being good at thinking. <laughs> and this is going back to the beginning of our conversation. It's, it's a reasonable inference. Like most of the time when we encounter individuals, entities that produce fluent language, there's usually a brain behind it that's generating it and that's doing some thinking. So it's a very kind of... Um, uh, it's a very unusual phenomenon to have a system that generates really fluent text that obviously doesn't have a brain <laughs> behind. It doesn't have a brain that does the thinking, right? These models have no intention to convey anything. They don't know much about the world except for whatever regularities they have learned from the distributional patterns in language. And so um, uh, it's a very interesting kind of question to think about and investigate kind of how far can you push that um, ability, like how much uh, structure and knowledge about the world can be extracted from linguistic patterns, because that's all that the machines have access to, right? I mean, that's like you throw the internet at them, basically, or, you know, <laughs> and try to um, see how, how well they uh, generalize after that. But they can't understand other people's intentions. They don't have intentions of their own. They don't know what, you know, banana smells like. I mean, how, how would they, right? And they don't reason, right? This objective that they're trained on, which is predicting upcoming words, is very good, apparently, for um, learning language. And that may be something that kids are doing when they're learning language as well, is this kind of um, driven by this desire to predict upcoming uh, information, right? But um, it's not the same objective that presumably drives our learning of 
math, our ability to reason logically, right? Those are very different kinds of tasks. And so, um, you know, one big effort in um, AI is to try to make these models bigger and bigger, try to supplement this language learning objective with other kinds of um, uh, information uh, or fine tune them on particular aspects of uh, cognition. And, you know, it's, um, you know, there, there are some successes there and maybe that, that will uh, lead us somewhere. But uh, I, <laughs> I think that a more fruitful and less energy consuming strategy would be to try to build systems that are much more like human brains, where there is um, some kind of degree of s separation between, for example, our reasoning modules or our social inference machinery and language, right? This store of mappings between forms and meanings. Um, and we're trying to do some of that and some ongoing work. Um, but yeah, I think it's <laughs> unlikely that you can get general intelligence from language alone. So you're saying that the GPT-3 and I guess soon 4, there's all this buzz on, on Twitter that it's coming out and has like a gazillion parameters. Like it doesn't really map to how humans, like I guess the brain is structured and you're, you're arguing that it, it probably would be more fruitful if it was structured more like that? Well, it depends on what your goals are, right? Like, so if your goal is just to build AGI, I mean, sure, you can keep scaling these models up and see how far you can push that. Um, I'm most interested in these models as a potential tool to also understand the human brain because, of course, models are great because they have a lot of freedom in what you can do with them, things that we, we cannot do with human brains for good reasons, right? And so if we come up with models that capture something about how humans perform certain tasks, and in fact, we and others have shown that um, some of these models like GPT-2 capture quite well uh, human neural responses and behavioral responses to language processing. But yeah, I wouldn't expect that a model, like a, a language model like that, would capture kind of the whole pattern of neural responses to complex cognition. And instead, um, you might try to build a system that is more confidential, like the human brain, and then we can try to use that model to ask cool questions about how these different systems may interact in the human brain to solve kind of problems that may require drawing on some reasoning skills, some social intelligence, some you know, knowledge of uh, what words mean and so on and so forth. There's this, I guess, third or fourth, whatever, AI boom happening right now. And there's a lot of, um, especially with these language models, right? There's many out there. Uh, I mean, GPT-4, 3.4 is just one of them. There's, there's others from Google, from Facebook, et cetera. Now, and then there's this, this is kind of the base layer, but then there's all these kind of applications being built on top of it with, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of startups, uh, kind of doing whatever niche application they're, they're building on. Now, are you, not are you, but how are you interfacing with these companies, with this kind of startup scene, with generally kind of the enterprise world out there? Like, is there a collaboration? And if, if yes, what kind of collaboration? Should there be more? Um, or is it good as it is just now? I think historically and now, like industry and academia have different goals, right? Like academia is driven by um, pure curiosity about the brain and trying to help people in some way, rather, right? Through education, through building, to, through, you know, helping build technologies that help humans. And industry is driven by, um, you know, typically, um, you know, making money. Uh, but there is, there is, there's now, <laughs> there's now, 
a lot of cool mergers happening between academia and industry. And there's big, big research components in a lot of, um, you know, companies that uh, develop these kinds of models. And so I think there's quite a lot of fruitful exchange um, happening already. Um, I'm, you know, I'm more sticking in the um, uh, academic side, but uh, but we do have this big um, kind of um, enterprise, I guess you you can call it, uh, called uh, the Quest, the Quest for Intelligence um, that Jim DiCarlo is leading at MIT. And he's been trying to kind of bring together scientists, cognitive and neuroscientists, and engineers, um, MIT engineers, including maybe some external collaborators as well, but uh, trying to kind of define the goals that may be common to engineering and science, and then trying to create this virtuous cycle where you use insights from cognitive science and neuroscience to maybe build better models, maybe more human brain-like or primate brain-like models, and then use these models to make um, kind of novel insights about how human brains or primate brains may be solving particular tasks. So there's, I'm definitely kind of thinking a lot more about uh, engineering ever since these language models have come about and since we found that some of these models capture something about how humans may be doing language. So I think it's a very exciting time for engineering science collaborations, how this fits into the engineering that happens in uh, uh, industry. Um, I think we'll just have to see how things unfold. There's a big conference going on. The I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but Nor IPS, NORIPS? NORIPS, uh-huh. Yeah, where uh, I think half my, my Twitter feed seems to be at right now. That's one of those um, conferences that kind of brings together uh, some of neuroscience and um, some engineering, yeah. So speaking of Twitter, I suggest people follow you on Twitter. Also, there's a number of great YouTube videos that uh, people can go if they want to learn more about your work. So Ev, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was absolutely fascinating. My pleasure. That was fun. 